We often look to scriptures to go deeper in our faith and grow closer to God. But do we really understand the scriptures themselves? We need to understand context that we are far removed from, deal with narratives that don't make a lot of sense to us, and we need to contend with issues that might make our stomach curdle. How we look at the Old Testament and why is it so hard to read? After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello, and welcome to Upwards. I'm the show's producer, Jesse Koopman. This semester, we're starting to focus a little bit more, not on just what we're interested in, but what we're doing here at Upper House. We've got a lot of new initiatives going on, and we're really wanting to highlight a lot of the things that are going on here. And for those of you who already attend in-person events, we want to give you somewhere to go next. And we hope that our podcast can be one of those things. This semester, some of our activities revolve around lectures. In fact, we're doing a lecture series. This coming Friday, October 6th, from 7 to 9.30, we are hosting Aubrey Buster. And she's covering the topic of why is the Old Testament so difficult to understand? In today's conversation, we sit down and have a wonderful time talking about her road to becoming a theologian and what it's like to be a professor teaching kids with all sorts of difficult questions about the Old Testament, and get a little bit of a preview about what she's going to share with us at the event. Aubrey Buster is an associate professor of Old Testament at the School of Biblical and Theological Studies at Wheaton College. Dr. Buster's research focuses on the Psalms, Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, Daniel, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Aubrey earned her PhD from Emory University, where she was a recipient of the George W. Woodruff Fellowship, her MA in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College, and a BM in Voice with Elective Studies in English Literature, also from Wheaton College. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Aubrey Buster. So what is it like being a professor of Old Testament theology? Yeah. Like, yeah. Hey, hey, let's talk about how does one even get, get started in this? Like, I, I've talked to a handful of people in this just because of what I do, but like, how, how does you become a professor of Old Testament theology? How do you wake up at a, a 13 or 15 year old or 25 year old and be like, you know what? I really want to study the Old Testament mm-hmm. and teach others about it for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was a much more gradual journey. Um, in brief, I came to the Old Testament through questions and became obsessed with finding its answers. I grew up as a Christian, and so the Old Testament was always sacred text to me. But my first area of study was music and English literature. Mm. Um, it was actually a, a medical condition. I was a voice performance major in undergrad, um, uh, but at a Christian college, at Wheaton College. And it, there was a medical condition that basically ended singing as as a viable life path and forced me into several months of vocal rest. Um, so I found myself with lots of free credits and more free time than your typical undergrad. And I decided to dive deep, really deeply into some theological questions that I had. My theological questions at that time 
revolved around why arts, like why do arts, including singing, have any purpose in the Christian life whatsoever? Why aren't we all, you know, part of NGOs ending world hunger, that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And I decided to start with the Old Testament. Um, I thought I started with Psalms. I thought that'd be easy. Yeah, there's a lot so of art artistic. in Psalms. Yes. And then I decided to start with my other starting point would be Ecclesiastes because I thought that'd be hard because it says everything's meaningless. And if I could figure out what it meant by everything was meaningless, maybe I could find out why art is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. That's great. So and it was me as a junior. Uh, just a quick aside there. What was your performance uh, focus? I, I, I was actually uh, going to school for choral and opera at one point. Yes, so. voice. Voice. So exactly, exactly. Um, music was and is still my love, actually. I don't, while I, I'm not a vocal performer of any kind, music is a really important part of um, my teaching and my mm. spiritual life. Um, I make students listen to tons of songs. <laughs> so we know a lot of Jewish prayers and a lot of scripture was designed to be sung. Do you sing to your students? So we sing together. I don't perform solo in the classroom, but we do sing together, maybe more than my students would like. Um, but <laughs> I think but that's I awesome. Do, I do view singing as a powerful, a powerful form of music in general, as a powerful form of theological education mm -hmm. and spiritual encounter. And I think it's, it's literally what some of the scripture was designed to be done with. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's, if you want to experience it as God intended or as the author intended, depending on your bent, I suppose, on, on the perception of scriptural authorship, um, it, it was made to be sung. Right. So. If you think about ancient Israel, this is actually what my dissertation work was about, was how oral performance, whether sung or spoken, how that played a role in establishing a communal memory in Israel. Because if you think about the ancient world, your average ancient Israelite would not have been picking up a Bible or a scroll or probably even a scrap of parchment with text mm -hmm. on it. They would have encountered the stories of what God had done in the past through oral performance, either spoken or sung or through rituals in the temple. And so I continue to view what we sing as maybe one of the most powerful forms of communal theological formation. It tends to stick in our minds. It's what we ourselves speak. Mm -hmm. It's shorter than your typical, you know, the Bible's long. It takes a long time to get through. Mm -hmm. Songs are a short form of this. Um, and so I think it continues to be a really powerful way that we shape people for good or for ill. For good or for it, ill. I was just thinking about that this morning in a very different way that I think is fun that relates. So I was literally on my walk this morning with my dog and I was yeah. out. I was thinking about, for some reason, it popped into my head the 50 Nifty United States that we learned in like grammar school. Yes. And I literally started singing to me, this is myself, this song in my head that I learned yes. when I was like eight years old. And I'm like, here's all the 50 states. And I'm like, I know all of them. Why? Because I sang this song in grammar school when I was like seven or eight years old. So I think exactly. it's, it is a really, really powerful tool for learning. Exactly. Um, that's going to bring me to a first question that I, I hadn't perceived that I was going to ask, but one that I've always had that fits this conversation really well. How many people in the ancient world could read scripture? Like how, how many people, I mean, it, I mean, I know some of this because I've studied some levels of history in different cultures, but um, I know in the Hebrew history, scripture and writing and reading and recitation are so much more important than many other cultures. Was it more prolific there? Were, were there more readers of texts or was it literally just the, the Levites or the priestly class or who read and who memorized and who learned scripture? Yeah, it's a great question. 
Um, and it's highly debated. It's highly debated. But even those who hold uh, the maximalist position, that is the ones that are going to defend the highest rates of literacy in the ancient world, refer to numbers around 10%. So that would be the highest in terms of in ancient Israel. This changes under Hellenism and in the development of Judaism in the um, CEAD period. But in the in terms of the texts that I study, it would have been something like 10%. Now, more of the population might have um, a semi-literacy, a functional semi-literacy. So they would have been able to maybe carve their name on a jar to indicate mm -hmm. it was theirs. They might have been able to scratch out a receipt. I sold you two sheep. You sold me a cow, that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of the literacy required to read and write these texts, we're talking even an optimistic number, about 10%. Um, this means that even the entire priestly class might not have read texts. They would have been trained in the performance of rituals, but that only a few, primarily those connected to the temple and the palace, are those who would have been able to write or read, which makes the ceremonies that we see in the text, the brief oral speeches of history and descriptions of God's activities, all the more important. Yeah, so we were chatting very, very briefly uh, before we started here today about the ironic alignment of the Jewish calendar today. Uh, so we are, for those of you who aren't aware, this is a uh, September 29th, where uh, it's the beginning of the Feast of Booths, or uh, I can't remember how to pronounce it. It's Sukkot. Yeah, Sukkot. Sukkot. Mm -hmm. um, so that starts today, and then Aubrey's actually going to be joining us for an event here at Upper House on the final day of Sukkot. Um, so with that being said, so we're on Sukkot right now, and you, we were talking about the recitation of text, which is also related. So let's just start there with some interesting concepts of the Old Testament that a lot of people don't understand. I mean, this is a Jewish holiday that a lot of people don't even know about. So first, let's start there. Tell us what this holiday is about. Tell us what you would like more people to understand about it. So the festival of Sukkot is a festival of remembering. It is remembering specifically the time that Israel spent in the wilderness between their exodus from Egypt and their entry into the land. This is, in fact, if you look at the recited histories of Israel, that is the ones that are spoken or sung in the text, this is the part of Israel's history that is repeated most often. That is, God is the God who rescued us from Egypt and then took care of us in the wilderness. Um, so Sukkot is the word meaning booths or tents. These are temporary shelters, the kind of temporary shelter that you would sleep in if you were wandering in the wilderness. That is before you built a, a more permanent structure in the land. Uh, the reason, or at least one of the reasons that this was such an important time period is that it was God who preserved and fed and clothed and provided water, provided everything that the people needed in the wilderness in a direct way. Um, and so it's, it's a festival remembering God's provision in that time. It's also a story of the almost continual sin of the people, um, God's response with both justice, but then also in mercy. So it's also a remembrance of um, the people's tendency towards sin and God's ongoing faithfulness in part to encouraged not sinning in the future, but also to remember God's faithfulness. And it's also the period of time in which Israel remembered Moses giving them the law. So this was the kind of divine, the most perfect, most complete divine revelation to Israel. And so they celebrated that divine revelation being given in the wilderness. So those three things, really, God's provision, 
God's provision, protection, and God's divine revelation through the law were all something that they remembered during this festival of Sukkot, where you would quite literally live in a booth for a while to remember <laughs> that period of wilderness wandering. And if I remember, uh, they didn't do this in a random spot. It was on the walls, right? As Yeah, so there's, in t so in terms of contemporary Judaism, I just have to say that is post my area of expertise, <laughs> so, which is um, often surprising to students. Judaism has developed quite significantly mm -hmm. from the texts that I've studied, very similarly to Christianity. Um, so I know it's adapted and adopted in multiple ways in Judaism, but it's also described in multiple different ways in the text, um, in part because it's probably one of those festivals that developed in significant ways um, in the post-exilic period after Israel returns from exile in Babylon and really takes up what does it mean to remember who we are as the people of God when we're not an independent political nation. And so we get a few different versions of what Sukkot might have looked like in the biblical text, just like we get a few different versions of what it looks like today. And I know that's something uh, for you, those of you who will be coming out to her lecture, um, she'll be talking specifically about why and how the Old Testament is hard to read. And this is a good inference to that. So I don't know if you're specifically going to use that reference or talk about that uh, next week, but um, why don't you give us a tease of something that you will be talking about um, in terms of what you intend to share about what's hard about the Old Testament to read. Yeah. So a couple of areas. Well, let me give maybe three areas. Three sure. areas that, sure. that I'll be addressing in the text. Um, and these are things that I've been dealing with with my students quite literally this week and next week. Um, so so my audience won't be alone. <laughs> my audience won't be alone in, in wrestling with these questions. Um some of the most difficult texts for us to read today are the ancient Israelite laws. Um, they can seem overly harsh. They can seem particularly cruel to um, disenfranchised people groups or people groups of lower status in ancient Israel, like women or mm -hmm. enslaved people or children. Um, and so these laws can often seem so so antiquated to uh, reflect an ethical system so foreign to our, our modern sensibilities that it's hard to read them. And it's hard to ask the question, so who is this God who would give us these laws? Um, Christians aren't the only ones to wrestle with this. Judaism continues to ask, how do we enact this law in, in, a, modern, um, in a modern period of time with the way that we think now and the way that our culture works now? So I think the laws are quite challenging and we'll get a chance to dive into a couple of the more offensive ones, mm -hmm. more offensive ones. Um, another area that my students wrestle with and that I wrestle with, um, I think it's important to note that professors in general get into their fields because they have more questions than the mm -hmm. average person have more answers. Um, and so texts that I myself wrestle with are things like the imprecatory psalms. These are the cursing psalms, the ones that, for instance, wish that you could bash the heads of the Babylonian babies on rocks, mm -hmm. or that you could, one of my favorite images in the Psalms, bathe your feet in the blood of the wicked. Um, these are provocative images that might Very. make, maybe hopefully make our stomach churn a little bit. And and then, of course, there is the the conquest of Canaan. This is probably the mm -hmm. example of, of Old Testament violence par excellence, where God endorses war or commands war against a particular people group. Um, and these are all texts that I think as particularly 
um, as people of this book, whether Christians or Jews, these are texts that we have to take seriously. It's our responsibility to think through them and wrestle with them and not be satisfied with pat answers, not be satisfied with just ignoring these texts that are in our Bible. Yeah, I love that. And I, mm-hmm. I'm very, very excited to hear it. So you might see me there if, if you're looking to, to meet both sides <laughs> of the conversation. You might see me there. Um, so on that note, there are other things that I think I would love to dig into today to talk about some of the challenges that I've personally faced that I'm sure a lot of other people have faced with reading the Old Testament. The first one, uh, actually before I even go there, there was something that you hit there that I really wanted to touch on. Uh, I remember you were talking about the questions that our, our professors have or that lead them to becoming professors. My favorite quote from my favorite philosophy professor in college was, philosophers don't ever get better at answering questions. They only get better at asking better questions. Um, so <laughs> um, I, I think that's so true in most disciplines, and I love that you can acknowledge that and you, you lean into that. And that study gives us a deeper sense of asking better questions and maybe getting closer to the right answer or the right question, but not necessarily the right answer. With that being said, uh, you've studied a lot. Uh, you've researched a lot. And I, I would love to know about just the concept of how it's hard to read. So you're talking about some of the things that make the content hard to read. But I think it's also one of these things that's impeccably hard to read because we're disconnected so far from the authorship of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we may be very close to God, but mm-hmm. not the people who scrolled the actual information into a piece of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're very distantly removed from mm-hmm. the context with which was being addressed through those words. Yeah. So as somebody who studied a ton and researched a ton and worked really hard to understand, what role, let's just start off with this very generic question. You can go however you want with it. What role does context play in your understanding of these texts? And maybe even how do you even start with understanding that context? Yeah, Um, hugely. Uh, Context, the context of the Old Testament is probably the single, if I was going to pick one area of study that has cracked open the Old Testament to me more than any other, it would be the study of the social and cultural context of the text. One of my most influential uh, professors was John Walton, mm-hmm. whose uh, area of expertise is, is the study of this text. And I think it's opened up the text in two ways for me. One, it has so much of our struggle with the biblical text is that we are reading it and the actions that the characters are taking are strange to us. Mm-hmm. We don't understand the phrases they're speaking. We don't understand the reasons that they're doing things. And the Old Testament is uh, a text to use Eric Auerbach's famous phrase, it's fraught with background. That is, it doesn't give a lot of mm-hmm. explanation or insight into character thought. The characters are just acting largely in ways that would, would have been expected culturally in, mm-hmm. in the ancient world. So understanding some of that has just filled in the gaps and given color and depth to the decisions and actions that these characters are doing, which has also given depth and reality to their interactions with God. Um, Because if I could sum up the Old Testament in a single phrase, at least today, it might have changed by Friday, but at least today, it would be Israel's struggle with God. And it turns out that Israel's struggle with God is very different in terms of its cultural context, but very similar in terms of the kind of enduring questions that they're asking. Very much. 
Um, so things like what does it mean for God to be perfectly just and also perfectly merciful? What does it mean to be the special selected people of God, but that God is also the God of all creation? Um, what does it mean for God to be a good God in situations of war and suffering and exile and hunger and death and all of yeah. these things that we continue to confront as humans? Yeah. Um, and so being able to translate their cultural context has shown me we're really asking some of the same questions. Um, but then, of course, it shows me how much God loves people, not disembodied, uncultural people, not this kind of ideal, maybe platonic person who isn't affected by their or even limited by the way that their cultural their culture thinks of things. It shows me a God that is willing to speak our language, that is really willing to limit God, limit God's self uh, to speaking a human language. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. So let's talk about how you get to that context, though. Mm-hmm. So obviously we can we can use the scriptures as a basis. We can start there. That's right. But as you said, it's filled with holes. It's filled with all these suppositions and understandings that we can't gleam from scripture. That's right. So where does one go to get more context? <sighs> I wish I, if there was video, I'd be holding up <laughs> the screen because I'm in my office and I'm surrounded. I'm surrounded by, by the riches. Let me say first and foremost mm-hmm. that the, the primary interpretive context of the Old Testament is the Old Testament itself. Mm-hmm. You do not need to spend thousands of dollars on an academic library in order to understand God's word to you. Um, Even many of those gaps that appear in the text, many of those um, details of cultural context that we wish wish were footnoted in every chapter can be better understood if you just continue to read the whole thing. Mm. Scripture is the best interpreter of scripture Um, because I never want to to, uh, claim to have any any sort of secret knowledge that that opens up up the scriptures uh, beyond that. So the best, even the best hint to the cultural context of scripture, the best way to be enculturated in scripture is to read it a lot, not just your favorite parts, but all of the parts, mm-hmm. um, and come to that understanding. I have loved and recommend to my students all the time a cultural background study Bible. There's um, there's one published by IVP, one published by Zondervan. I like this because of the way that it brings um, some cultural background material right up next to the text that um, that that you're reading. And this isn't sponsored. This isn't sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sponsored by anybody. Unfortunately, maybe. Well, um, Wheaton, but sure. <laughs> pardon? Wheaton, but that, that's right. That's right. That's right. Sponsored by Wheaton. <laughs> um, uh, so I really, I really love that. Um, I've loved uh, Sandra Richter's Epic of Eden as a kind of overview of mm-hmm. some of the primary background concepts that have been so helpful to me. Uh, but the other thing is that the internet is just a treasure trove of background information. The Bible Project. Oh, Every yeah. time someone's like, I found information on the internet, I'm like, oh, no. But the <laughs> Bible Project is awesome. I don't, of course, I don't agree with every interpretation that they have. But they have some really excellent background knowledge. Yeah. Um, there's YouTube videos by scholars diving into the background of particular texts. And so I think at this present moment, we just live, we live in a space of a wealth of resources access um, concerned with helping us access that culture. Well, that's really exciting to hear. And I'm glad that you are finding that most of it's good. 
because uh, like you said, my first response when somebody says, oh, I found this on the internet, I'm always like, oh no. Um, so yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you're setting a lot of really positive yeah, yeah, and wonderful yeah. resources. And, and not most use. of the internet. I never want to say most of the internet is good. I'm pretty sure that's a false statement. But the Bible Project, a good a good amount of the Bible Project is, I think, at least backed up, right? Like at least <laughs> Oh yeah, are, it's incredibly well-researched. and Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so as an average person who's sitting down to read, and wants to get a good understanding of, of this context. Mm. And you talked about the, the context Bibles, and I think that's a really great idea. I want to check one out. I've never looked at one. Mm -hmm. um, but what would you tell somebody who's sitting down to read, not for the first time, but say they've, they've, they've maybe read the whole Bible in a year or whatever, and they got through it all, and they, it meant something to them in terms of that practice, but mm -hmm. they want to understand more deeply. Mm -hmm. How do they read the scripture? to gain that contextual understanding that goes beyond just, this is the words on the page. I understand this is the history and what happened. How do they really grow in understanding? Mm, mm, mm. And in this case, are you looking for more resource recommendations or hermeneutical methods? Because I think Hermeneutical I methods. Thank oh, you. Yeah. That's a great way of asking that question. I'm going to steal that from you at some point. Yes. Um, great, great way of asking that question. Yeah. Hermeneutical methods. So in order to be a more sensitive cultural reader. This involves both being aware of the culture of the text while recognizing that a lot of it's implicit, but also aware of your own culture. Mm -hmm. The exercise that I require of my students and myself, hopefully, um, is making notes in, in the margins or on another sheet of paper, making actual notes of what the text itself is emphasizing. So these are things like I have my students circle repeated words where the passage is going from the beginning to the end to actually mark gaps in their understanding because many interpretive fallacies occur when you are unintentionally filling in these gaps. Mm -hmm. And so to actually sit with the text and to say, okay, I don't understand what maybe say day means in Genesis, or I don't understand why this law exists. Uh, this is a gap that we do as readers, as humans, have a tendency to fill in automatically. So something that I have my students do is the exercise of identifying what the gaps are so that they can go back then and say, well, recognizing these gaps, what is the text itself emphasizing? What is the text itself emphasizing? And then imagine, this is my other <laughs> hermeneutical strategy, then imagine that you're having a conversation with your most annoying devil's advocate friend Mm -hmm. who is challenging every assumption you're making about the text. And, and if you don't saying, have one of those friends, you need one, by the way. That's right. That's right. They will help you become a better interpreter <laughs> and a better person um, who asks, well, wait, where did you get that? I always, I have, I have students who do this and I love it, mm -hmm. right? They have their Bibles open and they're checking me. If my students are listening to me and they don't have their Bibles open, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> you're just trusting what I'm saying. That's not, that's not a good way to read the text. Mm -hmm. Open it up and say, wait, where did you get that from the text? And if you look back and say, I don't know, you have not read it carefully enough. Yeah, Because there are some things, there's a level of depth and richness to the text mm -hmm. that can always be illuminated by further study and the kind of resources you find in academic library and knowing ancient languages and all of these things. Mm -hmm. But that is not the only way to achieve a richer and deeper understanding of this text. Yeah. Simply knowing what does God, what is God trying to reveal to me through the text's own emphases mm -hmm. is um, the best 
the best way to read scripture. And it sounds simple, but it's surprisingly challenging. <laughs> we want to fill in the gaps. We want to assume knowledge. It is so easy too. Uh, if you don't mind, I have a story I want to share here. So I had a good friend of mine that I was in Bible study with for a couple of years, and we would read not just the Old Testament, it happened everywhere, but specifically in the Old Testament. He would get so excited about the way people would respond to God's call. And I'm, a, I'm all about that. Like, I get really excited about seeing people respond positively to God's call too. But he's like, like God said to Abraham, do this. And he's like, he just did it. Mm -hmm. He just did it. He went and did it. Well, mm -hmm. it doesn't say that at all. It says yeah. that he did it. It doesn't say that he went immediately. It doesn't say that he, like, he, he's, he's leaving out. It might have been weeks of arguing with God and all the, right. the, the Bible emphasized that he did it. And that was what was important. Yes. So, like, you, can, you can't interject all this contextual stuff where, you're like, yes, that would be important to you if you were writing the story that you would have written. Right. But be, right. just because that's not there doesn't mean it didn't happen. Absolutely. And this happens in a lot of ways where we... We assume time periods that make sense to us in our historical writing that like if, if the events are juxtaposed, they happened immediately and consecutively. And mm -hmm. even that can't be assumed. There are episodes that occur out of order. There are episodes that um, conflate many, many, many years into a single yeah. event. It's just how ancient Near Eastern historiography worked. I can tell you from contextual studies, they're messing with the timeline all the time mm -hmm. in order to make a more important point. Yeah. Yeah. And even that, I would say uh, the most of one of the best ways I've read the Old Testament was the last way I read through it fully. And that was a chronological version of the Old Testament. Yes, uh, okay. That was very, very helpful for me because the way it's organized in our normal canon is not chronological at all. Right. And right. it's sometimes really, really complicated to tell, okay, this happened here, this happened there. Yes. And then you get yes. like books like Psalms that cover a huge gamut of the canon. And, and it's, it, so it's very, very confusing for me Absolutely. personally. And, and I oh, found that too. incredibly helpful. Me too. Me too. So a lot of my years of study, we're trying to get the, the timeline of the Old Testament straight. <laughs> so that's fantastic. This has been really, really great already. So a couple of questions that I really wanted to get into today were some of the common questions you get asked as a professor. Give me a taste of some of the more challenging questions that your students could bring to you every semester. Mm. So one that my students bring to me every semester, uh, re truly, is why is the Bible so bad for women? Why is the Bible so bad for women? Yes, yes, please give um, me information on this. <laughs> this could be a whole talk uh, in and of itself. In and Perfect, of itself. we've got 15 minutes. Go. We've got 15 minutes, we've got 15 minutes. Um, and it has to be qualified by the fact that uh, I'll just say the Bible has been used against women oh, for a very, very long time. So if you're measuring, if you're measuring a text by its use, <laughs> it mm. might historically have been um, bad for women. And one of my, uh, and I am a woman, maybe your listeners will assume that from the, the tone of my voice, but I am, I am a woman. I am a woman who believes in the Bible. Um, and I am also a person of faith. And I, I do believe that God loves me as a woman. And part of my journey, part of my journey in interpreting the biblical text has been wrestling with those issues myself, mm -hmm. not, not ignoring them, not overlooking them, not justifying them, not just saying, okay, this, this, was, this was the time period. A couple of things that have been most revolutionary to me, and I do have to say that this has been a revolution in my understanding, um, 
And it has been a great joy to see how the, the needs and the lives of women are attended to in the text. The first thing that I note for my students is that often their sense that the Bible is bad for women and just overlooks women's stories is not shaped by a reading of the text. I'll have, I'll have students, and, and I came to the text myself going, why are all the stories about men? Mm. And I say, well, they aren't. They aren't. Often when we're reading selectively, um, we have tended to tell the story as one that's primarily about men, kind of skipping over the, woman, the women as secondary characters. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that based, again, on the amount of time that the Bible spends telling these women's stories, that that is an incorrect way to read it. Uh, so the first thing I would say is we need to read it all, not just the selective version that we've been told is important, that we've been told is the main storyline, um, but attend to these women. If you compare the Bible to other forms of ancient Near Eastern historiography, it is overwhelming how many women occur, how many women are represented in the text in speaking roles, in direct interaction with God. Um, they are truly the heroines of the story in almost it's, every instance. It's hard to think of it as progressive now. Oh, yeah. But oh, yeah. yeah. It, again, getting back to it, everything is contextual. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing that I tell my students is, and this is what I've learned, everything, when I say I tell my students, I want to emphasize that this is a lesson I've learned and that's what I fast on. So someone told it to me and I'm mm-hmm. telling it to them, is that the what God reveals through culture, that is what is good and trustworthy, but the culture that God reveals it in is not good mm-hmm. and trustworthy. And the Old Testament was written in a deeply patriarchal culture, as most, not all, but most cultures have been um, throughout all time. And so this was a culture that assumed women were lesser, that women did not have the legal rights that men had. Women's bodies and lives were largely controlled by the men in their lives. And for whatever reason, God did not decide to come down and say, listen, I am transforming and revolutionizing this culture into a a society that values equality and inclusion. God did not come and transform Israel into a perfect society. Jesus did not come and transform Roman culture into a perfect society. Um, Despite many people expecting and wanting that. Despite, I want that. I want, I'm just going to (laughs) say, I want that. I would love Um, if Christ came back today and revolutionized our culture and made it perfect. Exactly. Despite God not yet choosing Mm -hmm. to perfect our culture. Um, And that's a question I have for God. But what I see in the text is that in the midst of a patriarchal culture, God is interacting meaningfully with women. And I think the most revolutionary understanding that um, that I've come to through study, through other teachers, is noting how God as one God is very careful to communicate to the people known as the matriarchs. So this is Abraham's wife, Sarah, um, uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. How God is eager to reveal that God is the God who's concerned both with the male things and the female things in ancient Near Eastern culture. In the ancient Near East, as many of your listeners might know, they believed in a pantheon of gods. Gods, male gods, primarily concerned with, quote unquote, I have scare quotes, male things. And goddesses concerned with, quote unquote, female things. Um, And this was something that women kind of depended on. They were like, well, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that there's a, a deity who's concerned with my safety and childbirth, the fact that I won't die due, through, due to a bleeding disorder, all of these particular female things. And so when God comes and reveals who God is to Abraham, it's understandable that Sarah's a little bit worried about this. Wait, are we just <laughs> going to worship this one God 
who she's probably assuming because of his initial interaction with Abraham kind of fits the male category. But then you see how throughout the book of Genesis, and if, if your listeners haven't read through the book of Genesis lately, you should, particularly Genesis 12 through 50, note how God is coming and saying, no, I'm the God who opens wombs. I'm a God who's concerned with your particularly female body, with protecting you in that process, with giving you a gift yeah. that you have traditionally associated with one half of the pantheon. Mm-hmm. Not a male God. I'm a God of everything. Uh, the God of both Genesis 49, the God of both fields and breasts and womb. And so imagining God interacting with the particularly female mm-hmm. concerns of the matriarchs and recognizing that storyline of the, the gift of childbirth. This is a theme throughout the Old and New Testaments, giving people children, is demonstrating that God's going to be concerned about women. I love it. That's a wonderful response. Very unanticipated by me, and I'm so glad to hear it. I, that really makes my heart feel good. Yes, mine too. I've never, I've never heard it presented like that before. I love that. That was great. Yeah, it was one of my more, I, I did not anticipate that either. As I was diving into the text, I'm like, wow, wow, this, this is good news. This is good news for, for both men and women. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, what's another question that your students often bring to you? Mm. Uh, why does God change between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Ooh, that's a great one. Yes. So why, why are most of my, for some context, um, mm-hmm. I work at a Christian institution, so most of my students are Christians. And so they're, they're coming to my class holding both the Old and New Testaments as sacred scripture. And it is a common Christian misconception that God, the God of the Old Testament, is a God of wrath. And Jesus is a God of mercy. Jesus is a God of mercy. And so another part of my journey has been coming to the truth of, oh, and I'm embarrassed to forget the theologian's name, who said beautifully um, that in God, there is no unchristlikeness at all. In God, there is no unchristlikeness mm-hmm. at all. That if you see a division between the character of God and the character of Jesus Christ, you're doing it wrong. And one of the ways that I've seen that demonstrated most powerfully is recognizing the truth of uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. If your listeners have a Bible, I recommend opening right now and highlighting <laughs> that because it might be the theological center of, of the Old Testament, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which says that God, the Lord, is slow to anger and abounding in compassion and steadfast love, that God will enact justice to the third and fourth generation, will not let the guilty go unpunished, but will then show mercy to the thousandth generation. And so what we see in God is perfect justice. And I think I think this, this generation is particularly primed to want a God of justice. I think sometimes we've been like, God is all grace. And I will talk about that in a minute. God is all mm-hmm. grace. But we want a God who's like paying attention to the bad stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we've, we've sensed that that's been ignored for too long, at least in, in, in my culture. And so God is a God of perfect justice. But more than that, a God of mercy. And so God's mercy always extends beyond God's judgment. And we see that played out in the narratives again and again and again, where God judges, but then God's mercy ends and extends beyond God's judgment. And the fullness of this in, in the Christian Bible is narrated in the person of Christ, who is both the one who will finally judge 
um, but also the one who has demonstrated how God will show mercy to us even beyond our death, even in our sins, even to Gentiles, even to <laughs> Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. I'm a Gentile, by the way, so I'm particularly grateful for that. Um, yeah. So I, I see that played out more and more now that I'm looking for that pattern. Okay, where is God's justice? But then where does God's mercy unexpectedly and surprisingly go beyond it? Well, that is fantastic, Aubrey. Thank you so much. And with that, um, tell us a little bit more about what you can expect from Friday. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Friday, I'm planning, um, uh, along with along with Tony, uh, to give three 30-minute lectures, each focused on a different difficulty with the the text. And then mm -hmm. in between those in between those lectures, we're going to have times of discussion. Um, so I really hope that people bring their questions. I find that that's to, to be a bit selfish. That's the fun part for me. I know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I know this stuff I'm going to talk about already. Yeah. Um, and so it's really in the questions and the engagement that um, we can both be be pushed in our understanding. So I really encourage that. There's no even if if you there, it's very, very likely that you'll ask a question that I'll go, oh, I don't know. Um, but bring there's no question that's too. Uh, too difficult or too offensive to bring into the conversation. Um, so I, I hope it's a, it's a time that we can really dive into those things really well. Awesome. And do you mind if I ask what those three topics are? I'm curious. Ooh, 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 yes. So I am dividing it into recurs threefold, world behind the text, world of the text, and world in front of the text. Because um, I think these are, it's a nice way to group our concerns with the text. So Probably I will deal with a couple of difficult law texts in the world behind the texts to show how these can be illuminated by ancient culture. I'm planning to look at the imprecatory psalms, the cursing psalms um, for the world of the text, those, those texts that contain images that perhaps should be offensive to us. Um, and then finally, the world in front of the text relates to um, our ethical encounter with the text. When we read it, what then should we do? And uh, I'm planning on dealing a little bit with the conquest in this. I have to promise your listeners that I won't solve this moral problem. And I'll, I'll tell them why. Well, I'm Friday. not coming now. <laughs> I think it's important not to. Yeah, exactly. Attendance just dropped. This is a waste of my time. Come on. My time. Um, but I'll also tell you why that isn't my goal. Because mm -hmm. that goal is um, also contained in, in the revelation of the Old Testament. Yeah. So that's I mean, what I'm you... planning on right now. Things can happen in a week. But but at this moment, that is that's the plan. Well, that's awesome. And I'm really, really excited. Um, and if you did tell me, by the way, that you did have all the answers, I probably wouldn't even bother coming because I wouldn't yes. trust you at all. So thank you for being exactly, honest. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Aubrey, this has been a truly wonderful occasion for me. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing not just your your knowledge and your information and your historicity, but yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been a real joy to just get to spend this time with you. Thank you yeah. so much for joining us. Uh, and to our audience, please do come out next Friday. Again, the time is 7 to 9.30 uh, here at Upper House. We would love to have you. It's going to be a great night. We are just so excited to have you all as listeners and as, as people of our community of faith. We hope to see you all soon. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. 
please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW. 